the Production Expert Podcast with Julian Rogers, Steve DeMott and James Richmond. Welcome to the Production Expert Podcast number 434. It's August the 24th, 2020. I'm Julian Rogers. I'm Steve DeMott. And I'm James Richmond. We've got some great deals from Universal Audio, Arturia, Isotope, Nugent Audio, RSPE, Waves, Editors, Keys, and Avid on our deals page. So go to the deals page and there are deals. Talking points. These are sponsored by Arturia. Hello, experts and listeners. Pro Tools Expert Talking Points is brought to you with the support of Arturia. Arturia has a wide selection of software effects, including three compressors, three filters, three preamps, and three delays you'll actually use. The latest release, three delays you'll actually use, includes Delay Tape 201, Delay Memory Brigade, and the unique and experimental Delay Eternity. A bundle of selected effects called the AudioFuse Creative Suite is included with all the AudioFuse audio interfaces. Follow the link in the podcast article or visit archeria.com to find out more on the effects you'll actually use. Great. So, talking points. Um, Russ isn't here to yawn loudly, but me mentioning AVB. So, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about uh, a couple of things <laughs> that have been on the blog recently, talking about AOIP, specifically about AVB, which is kind of, you know, it doesn't get as much attention as uh, as it might do, especially as it's, uh, it's more uh, accessible sibling Dante, but obviously there are other things out there. We've got Ravenna, we've got uh, uh, SoundGrid, we've got there's, there's various things that you can do, uh, uh, sending audio down Cat5 cables. So uh, anyway, we've had some AVB stuff on here, particularly um, uh, Steve has written a piece about uh, how he uh, fell upon AVB as a, as a solution that he wasn't necessarily expecting in sorting out some wiring issues in his studio. And uh, James, recently you were you put a lot of work into uh, getting acquainted with some AVB boxes from RME. Uh, I think that might be a place to start because um, I was talking to you at the time and it was something of a journey of discovery, wasn't it? Um, maybe top line here, uh, AVB is not the same as Dante and all flavours of AOIP aren't the same. Um, now we've got that. AVB, how did you find it? Had you used it before? I had not used AVB before. Um, I'm you know, fairly familiar with Dante. I run a Dante network and I'd used it at a previous employer quite a lot. Um, I was aware of AVB and I've been a, aware of other competing uh, formats as well. Uh, but it was the first time to to spend some time with, um, with some AVB products. Uh, it was generally good fun. Uh, it was not without a few issues. Uh, Notice the main one being um, what we used to refer to in support as uh, PEBCAC or problem exists between keyboard and chair. Um, yes. Me, but essentially me buggering it up. And, I was going to um, say, um, I th- I th- you described it as good fun. Your definition of good fun maybe differs from mine because that sounded like some quite hard work you had to do to get that working. Well, yeah, it was. And if I never got it working, I probably wouldn't have the same attitude but you know if, if everything comes out in the wash and it does end up working you feel a sense of achievement and that's certainly what what happened there um but you know that it really wasn't a, a problem with the rme boxes but avb is significantly different from the way dante works um specifically you know, the, i mean if someone's if someone has for example had to play with some dante equipment and they found that the things find each other and present themselves in some control software and you just go click i want to connect that to that how different is using avb to that what what are there any are there any hurdles to you know getting to that point where you can decide what talks to what yeah um well because i was using primarily rme boxes i was negotiating their control software uh, which meant I had to do things in, in various different places. Uh, unlike Dante, where you effectively spend all of your time in Dante controller uh, connecting devices, um, there are a couple of different places where you can do that. Um, RME have a, their own remote software where you can control a lot of this, the, 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 the connecting different devices together. Um, and you can also control some of the uh, mic preamps and and... Uh, and levels, but then they have their own 
control software as well called Total Mix. So, so you're bouncing between those two places, and then you need to use something called Navdeck as well um, in order to, uh, to to connect AVB streams together. So it, it just felt a little bit, for me, it felt a little bit fiddly going from one piece of software to another piece of software. This sounds uh, familiar. Um, yeah. I, I mean, bringing you in here, Steve, uh, so your experience of uh, connecting, I mean, would in a, in a second I'll ask you to sort of briefly, Pracy, what, what you were trying to achieve and why you, why you went to AVB, because you weren't setting off saying, hey, this AVB sounds great, I want to play with it and find out how it works. It was actually to solve a problem that existed in the world, but... Um, this sounds very familiar to me. This thing that uh, issues that that you're trying to solve using multiple pieces of of, uh, of software um, along the, along the way, and things can get a little bit messy when you haven't got like a unified interface where everything happens. I mean, it's probably a much much more widely experienced version of this might be anyone who's ever tried to say root system audio around in uh, between drivers and stuff just on a computer just you know c- keeping audio flowing around the same machine not between machines but still yeah, exactly. trying to get if you different don't have bits of software like, to talk to each other exactly yeah. if you don't have something like sound source then you know it, and it, it can, can be a, a bit problem. of a nightmare people say yeah. hey, it's fine you can do it just get soundflower and do this and do that and and, and it, you can very quickly start going why can't i hear stuff and I, I i don't even know what's an output and what's an input anymore because i'm so confused does that right. is that something that touched your uh, <laughs> your, your worldwide you were trying to set up your your keyboard room thing well no um not not so much the reason i went with avb is because avb was there excellent if that makes sense so we had we should probably break off here and um explain what you were trying to do yeah so we have a keyboard room. If, if, you've seen, if you've seen the article, you've seen the layout. The keyboard room is in the farthest corner from the control room. What we were trying to do is route the output, really, of a Mac Mini that was running Ivory back to the control room so we could record the output. Now, we have a panel on the wall, and when we went to go, by the time we routed out of the Mac Mini into the local playback on the keyboard and the then into the um, patch panel, there was a nasty buzz. So, you know, we grabbed some DIs. You could, we isolated it and it worked. And I, but I'm sitting there thinking, uh, that has the very real potential of coming to bite us in the ass when we actually need to do that in front of a client. There is that, un- there is that uneasy thing about ground loopy stuff and things of like, you make it go away, but all you've done is skipped finding out why it was there. <laughs> exactly. And and the wiring was pre-existing from the previous studio owner. So you're kind of left in that spot where you have to say to yourself, I can open the wall, you know, trace all the runs, maybe, you know, patch a new wire or whatever, or I can find a, you know, solution B. And as I'm thinking about that, I look down and I noticed that the Mac mini was plugged into a Motu 24AO. And in the control room, we have a Motu 16A that's uh, aggregating all our patches coming from the preamps and stuff. So they both have the little AVB logo right on the front. And I said to myself, huh, I think that's going to solve our problem. So historically, were you an, a Motu user and you just happened to buy some new boxes and they had AVB? Was that on your radar when you made the purchase? It really wasn't. Um, personally, my my um, remote rig and my home setup are uh, they revolve around metric halo interfaces, and they have their own version of AOIP. They have MH Link, which is extremely robust, and their control software is extremely logical, uh, and uh, is not the case with the Motu stuff. Um, I don't know who designed their UI, but it. it it could use some work. Are you uh, are you talking I, about the the control software for um for the Motu, Motu Pro Audio Control? Yeah. Okay, because I I was very complimentary about that a long time. I rather liked it. Really, I felt once I wrapped my head around the idea, and this this required a, a call to Motu support. Actually, um, certain things that I expected weren't being done the way I expected them internally. Even so much as I had to reroute. Um, 
like output from Pro Tools back to a second bus in the digital mixer uh, so that I could hear playback along with uh, what I was recording. It, it it just worked so very different than my metric halo stuff. I felt I had to take extra steps that I didn't feel like I really should have needed to. And that's probably an expectation thing on my side because I have so, you know years of experience with the metric halo stuff where that had already been thought through and they already figured out the use cases that most people are going to be dealing with and have kind of built it into their interface. So that that's probably where I came to that conclusion that it was convoluted okay. is that it it required extra steps that I didn't need in my other setups. And and if it's significantly different from the thing that you've used before, then that's always a thing. James, have you have you ever used any metric halo hardware? You yeah, no, I haven't. And I, I came quite close to um buying their little was it the ULN two not too long ago. Um, but I ended up buying a, a, a Universal Audio Apollo X8 instead. I needed something here in Geneva, um, where I am about 30% of the time, um, as, a, as a little interface that, that would potentially um, cope with a lot more if it needed to. And so I figured I would grab a ULN2 and then I could expand it um, mm -hmm. over the MH Link. Uh, but I couldn't find any in stock in Europe to buy and I could find a load of uh, U-Audio, so that's why I went with that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Right. It's, it strikes me as a thing. I, I wasn't really that familiar with it until I was, I was having a chat with the guys at Metric Halo a little while ago and was really impressed with everything that they were doing. It's always been a brand that I've been very aware of, but not actually spent a great deal of time around. I think yeah, maybe the I think it might be more of a US thing than a Europe thing, possibly, Metric Halo. Uh, it's, uh, they're not even that well known here. Well, because I'm I think so impressed with the 3D thing that they were doing and all oh, the yeah. retrospective compatibility of, you know, really it, looking after so their smart. customers. It's really, really smart. It's probably a quite a good example here, just because I don't know very much about it, but just looking at some the fact that they're giving specific figures for latency and they're very, very low, uh, what are they saying here? Um, it, was, it was in the microseconds. Uh, um, yeah, I don't remember uh, the specs are. I've, 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 I've for got me, a, though... The for me, though, the issue isn't so much the you know that side of things. It's actually the trust that it engenders by you buy a product off them, and then five or ten years later, they come up with an update for the hardware that doesn't mean that you have to go and buy you know ten grand's worth of kit. But you know, so so I just think that's a fantastic idea. And if they had the dealer support here in Europe, I would have already bought one. You know, that, that I just couldn't get the mm, hardware. Really impressive stuff. It's 16 microseconds is what I was looking for. This suggests to me, because th there's there's a, a potential area for confusion when you start dealing with AOIP, which is that they've all got the same plug, but what's happening behind that plug and between that and the other device isn't necessarily the same. Yeah, um, sure. People always start talking about the seven-layer OSI model, and if you're not like a network person or something, then it's going to mean nothing to you, and a lot of this stuff isn't relevant to you unless you are a network engineer. And, and actually, even even if you are a network engineer, a lot of the time you're, you're not actively thinking about it when you're working. Um, you know, I know that from my dim distant past. Sure, but uh, but people start talking about stacks and things, and they go, "Oh, what are you talking about?" But there's a really nice illustration here. If anyone who's used like a a live console using some of these uh, some of these uh, audio over Ethernet, shall we call it, solutions, which are really really low latency stuff like Super Mac that the uh, Midas use and stuff like that, that's just using the plug and the and the wires, but it's not actually Ethernet. It's 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 audio over Cat five, if you like. You then yeah, get into maybe. layer two. That's layer one, the hardware layer. Then you get layer two, which is using Ethernet and the certain things that happen once you are using Ethernet. And that's what AVB is. And it's it's different from Dante, which is layer three, where you start having recognisable kind of data. But no, I'm going to step away from that because I'm going to say something that's wrong here anyway, and I'll have all the, all the network people jump on me. But basically, it's different. That's really what you need to know. And there's certain things you can do at one layer that you can't do at another. But it brings certain constraints in terms of the amount of work that needs to be done to push stuff around. Um, yeah, the, and the, the main thing to, I guess, for people listening to be aware is AVB is deterministic, which eff effectively means you're going to uh, cordon off part of your bandwidth, and that's going to be used for the AVB signal. Where Dante, you're using quality of service lanes, uh, but it's still operating on what's called a best effort basis. So, so it'll get there and it'll get there quicker than everything else, but they can't tell you how quickly. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's a really significant difference, but this is the the really big difference that people need to be aware of, particularly if they're working at the institutional level, which is that to use AVB, because it's because it's a whole new standard, it's an extension of existing Ethernet, you need you need AVB compliant routers. Yeah. Switches. Yeah. And, and exactly. Switches, uh, I should say, not routers. They're not the same. Uh, but yeah, because of that, you can't just have your existing infrastructure that you've got your network infrastructure and go, hey, let's start running AVB on it. That's not necessarily going to happen. Probably not. No, no. Right. Once you get past two um, devices. Which is where I was going to go next. Um, yeah, because you, I mean, it, it is quite fortuitous just because, I mean, it's a while ago now, back in 2016, but I had a look at this Motu stuff. I loved all these Motu AVB interfaces and I spent quite a bit of time with them, did a bit of recording work. The only pitfall actually is you need to sort out your, your clock master, which is, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, you, you came across and seemed to come across straight away. I was actually in a session before I started to go, hang on a minute, what's going on with my clocking, which is never a, a good place to be. But no. it was the, there was a firmware update a long time ago now, anything, which brought in a few new features, and one of them was direct Ethernet connection. Prior to that, you needed a switch, and you needed to connect via a switch, but uh, for, for, since 2016, you've been able to connect two boxes together and route audio um, between the two. Won't touch you at all, this whole switch constraint, because you're not using a switch, you're just direct connection. And in your case, that was absolutely fine. You say in the piece that you've done, though, Steve, that if you want to expand and extend this AVB network that you're running, then you'll need to use a switch, and it will need to be one that's compliant. So it's a really big caveat that you need to be aware of with this stuff. Right. But the big question I've really got is that Dante, let's not be shy about it, has taken over the world. <laughs> and uh, it's, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who are, who are making some kind of equivalence in their head between AOIP, meaning Dante. It's so pervasive. But there are other ways of doing it. This is a way of doing it. And you touched on the uh, the principal difference to be aware of is that you've got a deterministic um, uh, fixed latency that the network will report. It'll have a look at the route the audio needs to take across the network and it'll say it's going to take this long and it will take that long and you'll be fine. Whereas with Dante, it's not necessarily the case. That doesn't affect people on small scale particularly. It's like it'll be fine and you probably won't notice it. But if you're setting up something very specific where you're going, I need to be able to align streams together to sample accuracy, you don't have that accuracy to play with in Dante, whereas in AVB you kind of do. Yeah, and so yeah. so for most people running Dante networks, if it's a small network, it won't really be an issue. And I'm running a converged network in the UK studio, so it's got data, um, um, video, and and uh, audio on it. It's fine, you know. I, even 128 channels of Dante is using a very small uh, amount of bandwidth. But if you're an educational institution that has thousands upon thousands of um, connect potential connections. And you don't set up VLANs, then you might end up in a bit of, you know, in a bit of trouble. Um, but large institutions are likely to have the the sort of know how to be able to do it properly, uh, and and that can certainly be done. I think the the difficulty will be the sort of mid level. So not just um, someone like myself, who's a guy who is in his own studio um, by himself most of the time, or one of these large uh, organisations that has uh, their own IT help desk. Uh, if you're a three or four room studio, you don't have dedicated IT support and you don't perhaps have the technical knowledge to set up VLANs, that's potentially where you could run into trouble. Right. Yeah. And then to set up VLANs and all, I mean, you're getting into going in and, and uh, editing the network hardware, which yeah, yeah. can be a nightmare. If you don't it, know what you're doing, you can actually kill your entire network. Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you would need to do that properly. Um, you, you you couldn't just have a go at it. No, no. You really yeah. need to know what you're doing. Or so so yeah. something of a of a learning curve involved. Definitely. The, I mean, the other thing actually, and this is one of the things that's really appealing about Dante, and um, I I would always recommend to someone who who doesn't specifically want to have to deal with networking say go go with Dante because it it will just do it all for you. But the discovery, um, uh, all of the kind of uh, um, establishing connections between devices is is basically automatic on Dante, whereas um, uh, yeah. not necessarily quite so automatic on uh, on other AOIP um, ways of doing things. I always want to avoid using the word protocol because it's not quite the word, quite the right word for this. But um, uh, we should mention things like there are things like Ravenna, 
which is extremely good and very popular in in, in certain parts of the industry. Um, yeah, it's a broadcast thing, isn't it? Well, yeah. it's not necessarily, but it is where it's popular. You see what I mean? Mm. It's kind of like there's no reason why Ravenna shouldn't be more popular in uh, in studios or in pro audio or other bits of pro audio, but it just happens to have a bit of a user base mm. uh, in in broadcasting. Yeah, you, you'll absolutely find it there. But um, with Dante, because... Uh, because for the most part, this has started to change slightly, but um, uh, historically it's just been a case that if you're a manufacturer, you buy um, a, a piece of hardware from Ordinate who who make Dante and you uh, use it in your hardware. And then from the network's point of view, everything is the same. It's all the same hardware because it's all using these uh, these Dante chipsets. That's not the case with AVB, and there's various different ways that it can be done. And compatibility isn't guaranteed especially between manufacturers right because each manufacturer so if you've got some personas equipment it'll talk to other personas equipment if you've got motor equipment talk to other motor equipment but motor won't necessarily talk to personas i've never tried i'd be interested to know if it does it'd be interesting yeah because each manufacturer needs to uh incorporate the standard themselves so it it, it leaves a lot of room for potential issues well, this is where AES67 could, you know, be useful. You know, are people familiar with, with what that is? Um, I am, but it's possibly yes. possibly should yeah. link to – I wrote a primer about it quite a while ago. Right. Um, AES67 isn't a solution on its own, though. It's the most important no. thing because a lot of people think that it's it's like Dante, and it's not. It's a transport-only stream. If you don't know what that means, it's probably yeah. not for you. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when, when I was um, – testing the RME devices, I did have a bit of an attempt to um, to connect into the Dante uh, network that I've got um, running in the, in the other studio. Uh, I wasn't that successful and it wasn't really within the scope of the review. I just had a bit of a play around, couldn't quite get it working. Um, Anyway, at, at some point I'll spend a bit more time trying to, uh, you know, crack that particular nut. It's a bit of a babel fish, so you can bridge between uh, between yeah. uh, different different systems, different ways of doing things. I would mention uh, at this point Milan, which is which is something that's going on. There's there's a organisation called the Avenue Alliance, which who work um, uh, towards. Uh, around compatibility between AVB devices, they they do they do lots of work around stuff like that. But they've got a thing called Milan, which is uh, it's it's intended to be a, uh, a solution to this compatibility issue that, you know, it, it, it'll make things clearer where where once they weren't. So if you, if you want to know about this stuff, have a look at Milan. Actually, I mean, AVB is is clearly more popular in live sound than I'd realised. And and live sound actually, I mean, with, where live sound goes, the rest of us are kind of following because the uh, um, the advantages of AOIP are, are way more apparent in live sound than they are in studios. But yeah, it's 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 an interesting one, definitely, and and something to keep an eye on. But a lot of people, I mean, talking, I don't know, th three four years ago, people were saying AVB's dead. It's still around, so you know what I mean. It's kind of it's doing fine. It's just not quite as ubiquitous as 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 Dante. Because it's kind of harder to do, but I'd, I'm going yeah. to plant my flag and say that philosophically, I'm 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 with AVB. I think it's the right way to do it. The issue is that do you work with uh, using current technology as it exists today and work with that and do the best you can with what there is at the moment, or do you change the technology and plant your flag on where you want it to be in the future and work towards that? And that's the difference, fundamentally, I see it between Dante and, uh, and AVB is, uh, yeah, um, let's get something that works now <laughs> or mm. let's make something that works properly. And yeah, well, I guess Dante had buy-in from several manufacturers. You know, Focusrite, their RedNet products really changed the way in which Dante was perceived to the point where, you know, the, the RedNet's technology was viewed as a, you know, a product type in itself, um, and you know, people weren't talking about Dante so much. They were more talking about RedNet, and it, particularly for in educational institutions, it had massive uptake. Um, you know, I've been running some um, some RedNet gear for a while, and now have it uh, with my Matrix, and, and and it does work extremely well. Um, 
Focusrite also, the thing that they got right, I think, is their Redneck control software is fantastic and it's really easy to use and it's really easy to use in the in the heat of battle, as it were, if something goes wrong. I, I don't find um, myself scratching my head. It's like, okay, I need to do something into Redneck control, do it, done, move on. Hmm. It's it it's a great. I mean, absolutely. The the that early uptake and that first generation of Rednet in education was such a no brainer. I was working in education at the time, and you'd got the IT um, support, you'd got the installed um, uh, network infrastructure, and what you had was you had a limited pool of uh, of equipment, but what you also usually had like a wealth of spaces different rooms and just it was it was all roll in roll out racks full of rednet so you yeah. could you know track something in the performance venue or you could go somewhere else and you know all of that right. stuff it absolutely it worked in that environment and they absolutely nailed it I, and I, you just bang it on the network and away you go you know if you if you were then trying to do that with avb in an educational institution and you go and you speak to the uh, head of it and say listen we've got this new technology it, it all you need to do is upgrade all your switch technology well they're going to a significant and, and, capital and, and, bid procurement yeah. process would have it's, to follow that conversation. It's yeah, just absolutely. not going to happen. And, and it's, it's the right example to, to follow up that thing about, do you have something that works with the technology that's available today or do you try to change how things are done? Because there, there are, there's, there's a clear advantage to doing it the AVB way, but there are loads of barriers to doing it the AVB way. And the converse is true. Doing with We're kind of turning this into a Dante versus AVB thing and, and there are more ways of doing it i mean i'm very keen to point out i i've it is to my regret that i've done virtually nothing about ravenna because i think ravenna is a really cool way of doing stuff um i've had i've had some conversations with uh um andreas hildebrand who's kind of like the guy to go to talk to about um uh, about ravenna and yeah it's 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 fantastic it's it's got some of the it's got most of the advantages of Dante and, and omits some of the disadvantages, most, most important of which is that it's an open technology, whereas remember that Dante is, is a proprietary technology and there is a right. per-channel cost. Involved. Yeah, and, and I know a few manufacturers that, you know, they don't want to pay the ordinate tax. Um, mm. And, and that, you talk to IT professionals and they just, they'll always say never bet against, against Ethernet and proprietary never wins. And it's kind of like, well, in our industry, it seems to be doing fine, thanks. But, you know, they're just talking yeah. about the in, the wider IT industry. And in the same way as if you have the same conversation uh, that we have all the time about uh, buying software versus subscription uh, uh, subscription models for software. Business IT users, I mean, you know, these kind of IT professionals shrug their shoulders and just go, well, that's how the whole software market works until you get to these kind of like slightly somewhere between consumer and pro. But if you're talking on an institutional level, software as a service always, you know, and that's that's just, that's a given. It's not surprising to anyone. So, right. yeah. Even the, back into the, you know, I don't, you go back even a decade and Microsoft was doing that with their per seat licensing in businesses. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and people so, got used to it. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. So yeah. we're a little bit behind in our industry on that idea because, you know, we've always owned the software that we bought. And, and I think uniquely resistant to it as well. Because, yeah, know, well, I, I, with, with good reason, I think sometimes, I mean, we've all seen the horror stories of somebody who's posting at, you know, 11 o'clock at night, uh, the Avid server isn't recognizing my license and I need to get work done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and isn't that the fear we all have that at some point it's going to fail us when we really need it? We, we've taken a real hard swerve here. But uh, we have. rather than go down that road, I think actually it's probably a good time to uh, to maybe kind of back out of that one just because I think uh, for, for, for most people listening to this half an hour about talking about AOIP is probably as much as uh, most people have. Uh, uh, wanna, we've reached the tipping there. point. Yeah, totally. So uh, let's talk about competitions. Yes. To celebrate their 10th anniversary, our friends at Sound Radix are offering three great prizes in our August giveaway. First prize is the Radical Bundle, which consists of AutoAlign, Surfer EQ, Pi, Drum Leveler, and Pow Air. Second prize is for post users and is AutoAlign Post and Pow Air. And third prize is AutoAlign plus Drum Leveler. We now have a second competition. If you would like to streamline your workflows, reduce the amount you use the mouse, not only in Pro Tools, but other apps like Isotope RX, 
Soundminer, or other DAWs like Nuendo and Cubase, then you have to check out Soundflow. For the rest of August, we are offering you the chance to be one of three people to win a 12-month Soundflow Cloud Pro subscription worth $119.88 each. That's rather specific. Uh, (laughs) This has been noted. Yeah. Uh, If either of these competitions interests you, then go to the win page on our site or click on the link in the podcast article. So can I uh, talk a little bit about um, Soundflow for a second? Absolutely, you can. Yeah, I, 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 got, I first heard about it actually on the um, uh, on the website, on the Production Expert website, had a bit of a look at it. And now I'm sitting here with uh, a Stream Deck XL. I have, uh, because I'm often traveling with a, a laptop, um, I have a, the uh, numpad on the Stream Deck and I have a whole bunch of custom key commands which are triggered from uh, Soundflow uh, well, via the Stream Deck. It's, it's really fantastic. If anyone works in a bunch of different workstations and wants to have some common key commands that you really can't get any other way, this is the way to do it. And it's particularly things like Zoom levels in Pro Tools and Logic having parity between those two applications. I've never been able to do it and I, because I spend so much time between the two uh, workstations. Oh, unifying going, the, the interface. Okay, so it becomes it's, it's, kind of agnostic. Yeah, it's really brilliant. And I'm, I'm going to jump in here very quickly, James. And just say, This links in perfectly to our second talking point. I don't know if that was planned, but if not, well done, because this is like a smooth segue. <laughs> because Maybe, we yeah. seem to be talking about control surfaces for our talking point too. We seem to have been there relatively recently, but it's always nice when we've got mm. kind of different people on. So... I think this counts as a control surface, don't you? Yeah, it does. It, and, and honestly, they've, they've done a really good job on it. I've been chatting a little bit with Christian uh, from Soundflow, and he's been helping me get some uh, custom key commands going. It doesn't do everything I want, but it, but it does an awful lot of what I want it to do. Um, and within a very short space of time, we're talking 24 hours from getting the Stream Deck XL here and programming a few key commands, I was up and running and, and, and it's working brilliant. And the great thing is it's contextual. So if I uh, uh, command tab away from Pro Tools to Universal Audio uh, Console, the Stream Deck changes hmm. because I've configured it to. And if I go into Logic, it changes again. So it's effectively like having a, well, in this case, a 32 um, button control surface for every single application. And just as you go between the applications, it changes contextually. It's, it's fantastic. So uh, what I'm kind of thinking is, um, uh, have you ever seen the hotkey matrix? Uh, yeah, I have. Is that configurable, though? No. No, it's not. But it's, That's the problem. it's very much the uh, the one button does one thing. I mean, it, yeah. it's, what it's got, actually, is it's got the thing of that key doesn't move. <laughs> so... Sure. Um, see what and, I mean? And, but it's, and it's that's a good thing. Yeah. Slightly analog kind of way. Of, I mean, it depends what, you do, what your needs are, obviously, just because, I mean, if it meets, if it meets your needs, it might be all you need. It's... it's it's a product that that it's, it's been around a while and it hasn't changed significantly. I think they'll point to sale keyboards that they were kind of repurposed. Yeah, That's yeah I have looked at them in the past, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and it always struck me as quite a nice way of doing it. Now, this seems like a bit of a taking that, but then also uh, um, I think the first place I ever saw these uh, buttons where you can change the display on them, like the Stream Deck has, uh, was uh, the um, the the Midas consoles? Um, I, I used to be I used to be good f- good friends with uh, the guys at Midas. Uh, sort of like you know before before they kind of did all merging with Music Group and stuff. And they and they had the uh, the the Pro Series mixes, and they had these big chunky pop group buttons with quite a coarse like d- dot matrix display that that you know displayed. And updated according to what was on that particular button, so you could change your, you know, your VCA groups, pop groups as they were, and you could see what was on each. And I thought that's a really nice approach for a DAW control surface. And I mean, I was thinking this kind of back in about I don't know when, twenty ten, something like that. And everything seems to have gone that way, but it's always been attached to something bigger and more expensive. This seems like a really nice thing because you can just have those buttons and not have the rest of the expensive bit that you may or may not need. Yeah, and for me, there's a couple of things that I really wanted to be able to do in Pro Tools that I've always done in Logic. And one is a key command um, that, that that I do all the time in, in, in Logic where I want to zoom, effectively zoom out to see everything in the whole arrangement, which in, um, in Logic is uh, Command A for Select All and then the Z key. 
Of course, you can't do that in um, in Pro Tools quite so easily. Are you, can't are you talking about zooming out horizontally or vertically as well? This is the thing in that it's not so easy to do in Pro Tools because the way in which zoom vertical and horizontal is sort of not really connected to one another. It's it's, it, it's it, too. I'm I'm, I'm going to have to jump in on this one, but yeah, sure. It, it's two keystrokes instead of one. It, it it is, and I'm thinking is one of them command up and the other is um, option Z or something like that. I can't, I can't remember exactly what they are. It's, it's option A for uh, to zoom out to show the entire timeline horizontally. And then yeah. um, you hold down all three modifiers, so command, option, and control on a Mac. There we go. And then hit yeah. up or down. It doesn't matter which, but up or down mm. arrow. And that zooms to show all of the tracks or as close to it as it can get if your sure. track's and, too and, deep. And, and that is fine, but you do find yourself switching between different combinations of modifiers. It just doesn't feel as, you know, I have the muscle memory of command AZ and it just I just go bang, bang, and it's done. I, I, was always I agree stumbling that a, a single keyboard shortcut to do that would be kind of a cool thing. Well, now I do. I've mapped that. So the great thing about Soundflow is you don't have to do it with a stream deck. So for, so I've done two major things with Zoom. Uh, one is I've cr created a, bu a button which is show all edit, which does those two key commands you've just said. But I've also mapped them to option command A. That does the same thing. So if I don't have my stream deck, then I can I can do it. The other thing I've done is the um, the arrows on the key on the on the regular keyboard that now controls Zoom for me, like I do on in Logic, where I hit, hold Command and I press an arrow and it zooms horizontally or vertically. And it, okay, and it but works this really is the arrow keys that you've got on your stream deck. Yes, but you're yes. using a keyboard no, modifier no, no, on your that's, keyboard. That's not on the stream deck. That's I've remapped them on the keyboard themselves. Oh, I see. So you can okay. remap your keyboard in this software as well as the. Yes, got you. In fact, what you do is you remap. The best way to do it is to remap the keyboard, and then use the stream deck. Uh, stream deck to call up um, custom key commands. So can you do that without owning this stream deck hardware? Easy. That's okay. how I configured it before the Stream Deck. Oh, I see. Up. So it's just okay. So it's, okay. I, I really stream, need to check this stuff out because I, I haven't. I, I know of it, but I haven't used it yet. And and I I realise I'm in some ways compensating for the fact that I'm a little bit lazy with remembering all of the billions of Pro Tools key commands. But I've got 30 years of knowing the logic key commands inside out. So I'm what I'm effectively doing is leveraging my logic knowledge and applying it to Pro Tools. Which was which is great for someone like me because I'm always working on my own computer. If you ever then put a computer that I don't own in front of me, I'm going to be a little bit lost. So you know, you maybe don't want to rely on it too much. Well, this has always been my argument for why it's a good thing that you can't change the keyboard shortcuts in Pro Tools. Is it sure. a universal so you can walk up to any machine with Pro Tools on it and and be able to operate it? Um, right. But yeah, it is kind of missing out on a certain amount of uh, flexibility, having to leave some knowledge behind. So in that case, um, the, but there's there's no option of being able to bring your Stream Deck and and your setup for that Stream Deck to another computer. Because oh, all you need to do is option. actually all you would need to do is install Stream Deck on that computer and plug in your Stream Deck mm. and log in with your account and and then it's done. Oh, so it's so your oh, settings are in the cloud. Yep. That is okay. Cool. That so is that, very that cool. makes it a lot more usable if you have to travel from studio to studio. Not only that, it, so I've I've got a Stream Deck that I've configured here. Enabling it and disabling a Stream Deck as a as a software object in the in in the Soundflow itself is a very simple process. So I could have a traveling Stream Deck configuration and then a studio based Stream Deck configuration. Okay. And just enable them and disable them depending on where I am. He's really Christian has really thought about how to implement this for it to be usable for most people. Cool. So anyway, I'm, we've uh, we've not so much talked about control servers. We've just talked about we know, haven't my setup. Yeah. That's that's all quality stuff. What I'm wondering about. So Steve, you I know you you have an analog console which you you still use at least some of the time. Um, yes. Do you have any kind of uh, hardware control surface or? any hardware control of your DAW, or are you a keyboard mouse Yeah, person? well, funny you should uh, ask. At, at um, I've always had a control surface at the home studio, um, but uh, just last week we got an S1 and dock for the... Oh, okay, so how, how is that going? Um, haven't had a ton of time to play with it, but uh, initial uh, reaction is uh, it's really good. I, I, I'm... 
I'm a little way, but I know the dock pretty well, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to get hold of an S1. And uh, when, when that happens, I'll certainly be doing some, uh, some content with it. But I'm feeling so keenly the fact that I haven't had hardly any time with, uh, with a Yukon hardware control surface, um, whereas I use DigiNet so much. <laughs> and uh, well i remember the the original yukon control surfaces that were quite kludgy at times i mean you they'd lose connection they were they were frustrating to work with so yeah i had the transport for a while in fact i think i still have it um and and that was a disaster for me it, it yeah. never it never worked reliably and there was no labeling on anything so you never knew what, what's that button do exactly you know, that, that, no not not a good system but i've got the dock as well and i love it and and considering an s1 as well mm. I, I i did a series on the dock and i mean even i only had a dock and i didn't have an artist mix or an s3 or anything like that with it it was pre-s1 when i was doing that and it, it, it felt like it was missing something namely faders but uh, but <laughs> even even on its own uh, it was such a useful tool but it's one of those things that you do need a bit of time to get used to them. You just need to make friends with it. You need a little bit of time to, um, for it to tempt you away from your keyboard and mouse. And this has always been the thing that I've had with them. It's just kind of like if you don't have um, – if it's not doing what the keyboard and mouse does better than the keyboard and mouse does it, then you're never going to migrate. And right. this is why – I mean, like page one on that thing was like it's got really good transport buttons. And it needs them because if you're going back over to hit spacebar instead of use your control surface, it's doomed. You know, it's never going to get used. Right, that's re- right. interesting. I'd be very, very glad to hear how you get on with that because, uh, like I say, that's somewhere that we're going to be going soon. We did kind of skip past the whole kind of uh, control surface thing, but actually, that stuff about Stream Deck um, is so interesting because it's, it's funny with the, you hear about these things, but it's when you get some first-hand testimony from someone who's actually using it. It's just kind of like, yeah, actually, I should probably pay a little more attention to this thing yeah i I guess i've got a particular use case and you know i have quite an in-depth uh knowledge of logic key commands and i'm still a bit rusty on pro tools so it it enables me to to leverage that um but but again i don't want to rely on these tools too much and and you know i think you still need to be working on um you know certainly i need to be working on getting uh some pro tools key commands under my fingers a little bit more um, actually, I have a question for Steve. Are you going to be using the monitoring side of the dock and the S uh, and, and the uh, Avid control, or are you not not going to be controlling your monitors from from there? I I would like to. Um, that's something we're thinking through because we have a a monitoring system in the studio that we would need to reroute some things, and it it's connected to. Um, we have several several sets of, of uh, monitors in the control room and the, it also feeds down to the lounge uh, for playback and into the live room. Hmm. So it's going to require a little thinking through, but I would like to because the first thing that I thought upon, even the first time I saw the dock was, oh, it's it's like the center section of a console. It's yeah. brilliant. That's, you know, that's what we need. We we need the the, or at least that's what I wanted was the tactile end of it without having to have everything running through an analog board because that I'm doing that less and less. Yeah. It's, there, there doesn't seem to be a big payoff for it anymore. Well, you know, I've had a bit of a change of perspective over the last few months about this. I, I always wanted to have a separate monitor controller that had separate inputs um, from the audio interface and not have the monitor controller too closely integrated. And the reason was I, a long time ago, I had um, a pair of monitors directly connected to uh, my audio interface and I, I just had a device freak out and it blasted full-scale digital noise across the outputs oh, and yeah. had me had me oh. running for the for the speakers to turn them off you know because it blew a speaker out and you know that happened and, but since I've moved to the uh, avid matrix I've been directly connecting my monitors the key 3s over AES and um, now the ATCs over analog and it, but it gives me that tight integration with the dock. I can control everything from the dock or the um, monitor operating module from DAD. And I can have, you know, if I wanted to put um, the monitor operating modules at different places in the studio, I could have tactile control over the monitors from there, or I can have it from the center section, as you, as you say, that the dock is. And it, it's 
it's a very good system and it's been very well thought through. Um, I don't know if you can use the monitor section of the dock without a matrix. What you need is you need a Yukon enabled um uh, Yukon enabled hardware. Now that's that's more than just Avid because um Yukon's very tightly locked down for for control and it's Avid only. Uh, but the bit that they've they run a connectivity partner program with is for the monitoring side of things. So there right. is there are there are some options. So do a bit of research and see hmm. see how that works because right. yeah, it's not as tightly locked down. But yes, there's you certainly can't run it with anything. Although a good tip actually is you've got the monitor control. Uh, is it bottom right, I think, on the on the dock from memory? Yeah, you can tie that to the you master fader. You can right-click on the yeah. master fader and assign yeah. that so you can control your master fader without anything, which is quite nice, but it's not the same as having comprehensive monitoring control. So, yeah, just right. have a look and see what your options are, but they're, um, you're just see what the score is. It's mostly about, from memory, it's mostly about uh, uh, monitor controllers so things like uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, things like things like the DAD Mom, for example, um, is uh, talks mm. con. So you know, there's there's a few things out there. Yeah. Well, this brings me back to the Stream Deck. Like I originally got Soundflow going because I thought what I'd be able to do is I, I've got a lot of analog uh, or you know physical synthesizers in the studio that are all connected directly to inputs. Um, on the audio interface. And what I wanted to be able to do was send them directly to the monitor so I don't have to run them through Pro Tools, just when I'm pulling sounds. And I thought right. what I could do with the Stream Deck is give me individual device control. Like I would just design a button for, I don't know, um, a Moog synth, and that would be on a button. But there is a problem with Stream Deck in that when it, when you're working with key commands or user interface stuff, you you can't have that application hidden. So I would have to command tab to Soundflow press the button and then com command tab uh, back to yeah, yeah. Uh, um, to Pro Tools. You know, it's not it, it's not the end of the world, but it also means I probably wouldn't do it. I could. What I can do is, uh, you know, I can do that from the dock and from the iPad. What I wanted was some, you know, physical muscle memory from the Stream Deck itself. Right. That's not currently possible. It might be at some point. We'll just have to see. Uh, so, so Stream Deck and Soundflow are not, um, you know, it, it, it's, there are limitations to what you can do, particularly with key commands and user interface uh, stuff. So, so it I'm, needs to be that front frontmost app for it yeah, to yeah. pass the key command through. Yeah, no, exactly. You do, and there's no locking. You can't lock it to a specific app, regardless. No, and you can with the dock, and that's the the great thing about it. You you can lock the monitor. So for me, with the matrix, I lock the monitoring side of the um, of the dock and the Avid Control app to Dadman. And it gives me control over over Dadman whilst I'm in right. Pro Tools. Right. Yeah, I'm going to jump in here and say, well, I think this uh, is quite a neat uh, loop back to to where we started, really, just because it sounds like the Stream Deck has solved a specific problem that you had that needed solving, James. And um, uh, the same could be said for the uh, the Motu AVB solution for your uh, for your cabling issues in your keyboard room so yeah uh yeah. best kind of products are ones that solve a problem you actually have rather than ones that uh, <laughs> can solve a hypothetical yeah, solution looking for a problem yeah. yeah the pro tools expert podcast is created using source connect now from source elements register now for your free account at now.source-elements.com if you have ever tried to do interviews over the internet with apps like Skype, you will know how hit and miss the audio quality and connection can be, and even on a good day, it isn't really good enough for a long-form interview. We now use Source Connect Now, which offers ISDN-equivalent quality audio using a Chrome browser. No software to install. To get your free account, follow the link in the podcast notes. On the final of the week, these are sponsored by RSPE Audio. RSP Audio is up and running remotely. Their team is set up and working from the safety of their homes, and their sales staff are available by phone, live chat, or email to receive and process orders. They have everything you need to build or upgrade your home studio and ensure you can continue to work from home. If there is anything they can do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out or shop online at rspeaudio.com. Plus, of course, the link is in the podcast notes. So, find of the week. Uh, let's see. James, what about you? What's your find of this week? Well, this week I have an 
AEA R84 ribbon mic and the matching RPQ500 uh, 500 series preamp, uh, which I am really, really enjoying. Um, as you would expect, uh, this is one of the, they look, it looks a bit like a pill, like a metal pill. Uh, I've had the R44 before, which was, you know, is an excellent but fairly expensive mic and it tied up a lot of money and it had a, a lot of proximity effect. Uh, the R84A doesn't have so much proximity effect. And because it's got, uh, I think it's a 12 dB preamp on board, I don't necessarily have to use a dedicated ribbon mic um, preamp with it. I can use my APIs or Phoenix Audio or, or, or Neves. Um, yeah, I re really like it. I, I, I happened to get the, the AEA uh, preamp as part of the deal, uh, despite not needing it for that particular mic. Uh, and that, that's a really nice uh, preamp. I think it'll do 81 dB again. Seems very quiet. Uh, has a high frequency gain control and a low uh, frequency cut, which is very handy. Uh, you know, I can actually see myself grabbing another one of both of these and having a nice stereo pair. Wow. Steve, what about you? Uh, interestingly enough, it's the S1. Ah, I think I think we, we could maybe refer to the answer you gave some moments ago on this one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, it's just, it's great to have the control surface in the studio now and, um, yeah, already said everything I need to about it. What about you, Jules? Uh, mine, uh, mine's the DDFM Magic Death Eye Compressor, which um, uh, on a uh, on a trip to LA um, uh, earlier this year, uh, we were we were at Capital and we saw Ian Sefcik's room. He's he started off as a tech at uh, at Capital, and um, he. He's now a, a, a mastering engineer cutting on a Neumann lathe and all of that stuff. But um, clearly a very clever guy because he he's developed this Magic Death Eye Compressor, which is like a, uh, an all-valve, very new um, design that's um, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not not a clone of anything at all. It's, it's his own design, but, you know, it's uh, it's certainly looking looking towards history, shall we say. And uh, it's been really, really rated by an awful lot of people. Um, there is a plug-in version, which I thought I'd uh, have as my find of the week because I've, I've, I've checked the demo and I can see what the fuss is about, frankly. I mean, I don't know about you. Do you ever kind of go, yeah, compressor, conchmesser? You know, it's kind of like, yeah. I've, yeah. It's, it, compressors are great, but people do seem to spend an awful lot of time talking about compressors. And every now and again, one, one comes along which you go, actually, that's great. And it is absolutely great. So if you haven't checked it out, check out the hardware and then buy the plug-in unless, unless you, you've got some cash and, and prepared to wait a little while because I understand he's building them as fast as he can, but uh, it's very much a kind of... Uh, um, a one-person operation. But, yeah, clearly someone who knows what they're doing. So um, on that, uh, we should round things up. So uh, that's been the podcast, and it's good night from me. Good night from me. And it's good night from me.